this week. I think I've always tried to make a home wherever I am. I mean, I'm a journaler, and so I've kept notebooks since I was eight. So writing has always been a way for me to feel at home wherever I am because I can put a notebook in my pocket or my bag and feel at home wherever I am. When Rachel Simpson left her family farm for life in the big city, she knew she needed to recapture that feeling of home. So she turned to the spiritual practice she's had faith in her entire life, writing. Rachel and I talk about her life as a writer, finding magic and meaning in the everyday moments we often overlook. She shares her passion for exploring history as a way to connect to her roots, and she reflects on home as a spiritual place, one you can create anywhere. Because how do you feel at home, no matter where you are? You find a little faith. I'm Maren Smith, and this is Keeping Faith. Keeping Faith is located on the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabek people in Hamilton, Ontario. And Rachel Simpson lives on unceded Algonquin Anishinaabek territory in Ottawa, Ontario. What is giving you hope right now? Is there a story from your life recently that has made you connect in with your sense of faith or hope? I just finished reading Amy Merrick's book. It's called On Flowers, Lessons from an Accidental Florist. And first of all, it's it's an amazing book for anyone that doesn't know anything about arranging flowers. It's very approachable. But um, there's a section in her book where she talks about the beauty of arranging flowers for the shadows that they cast Mm. is actually something I've done before. But it was really refreshing to hear someone I admire talk about that. And I just am really interested in everyday beauty. I find that to be very hopeful. And the natural world is is so resilient and is a constant source of inspiration for me. So that is my first thought when I think of something recently in my life that has drawn that out. Can you tell me more about arranging flowers for their shadows? That's, I'm really curious about that. So it's basically you take a vase of flowers and it's usually at a time when there's beautiful sunlight in a room and you just, instead of having your frame or your focus on the the vase, it's kind of a, a refocus of your attention. Like you're focused on the stems and the blooms and in, in how they're reflected on the floor or the table. And you're just arranging the shadows instead of the actual flowers. <laughs> and yeah, I just really liked 
I mean, when I did that for the first time, it was unintentional and I really like photography. And so I was using this to get good photos. I just thought they were equally as gorgeous as the last one. And I just, yeah, when I, when I stumbled upon that section in her book, I thought, oh, I'm not the only one who does this. Maybe this is actually a form of floral arrangement that I just didn't know about, which happens all the time with the arts. You don't know that there's an actual definition or a name for something that you've been doing for years. So that was that for me. I, I'm curious if the idea of shadows is something that plays out in other parts of your life, a curiosity about a reflection or like seeing the other side of something, because that's a little bit of what you're talking about at this floral arrangement. It's this idea that you're seeing something hidden, you know, mm-hmm. or that not many people might, might notice, but that there's something of value in it. And I'm, I'm wondering if there's other parts in your life that, that, that is present in as well. I mean, the play of darkness and light is, the obvious thought that I have and just the contrast and also the, the balance that's needed. And yeah, I mean, I have literally arranged the shadows of flowers, but figuratively too. Absolutely. I think that it's something that I do when I'm trying to frame questions or when I'm sort of apprehensive about the way that someone or something is trying to display something or Hmm. present information, (laughs) those kinds of things. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about where your thoughts and feelings on this have come from in your life? So maybe going back to the beginning, what were you taught about the world growing up? And what were you taught about the concepts of faith and hope within the world? I was taught to be grateful for what I have and to take care of it. I did grow up in a religious home, so I was taught to say my prayers. I was taught that God was always by my side and had a divine plan for me. I've spent most of my adulthood unpacking and reworking a lot of those things. Um, I don't believe in God, but I do find meaning in being woken up by the moon when it's shining through my window or having a conversation with a stranger that impacts my life in ways I might not recognize until years after. Yeah. How, when you were young, did that kind of traditional Christian faith play out in your life? Like, was it an everyday thing? Was it, you know, something that was practiced just on holidays? Was it something that was modeled by your parents? What kind of role did it have in your life? It was a day, like they are practicing Christians in the true sense that they, you know, they're not the kind of people that go to church on Sunday and the rest of the week is without any other rituals. They, you know, um, really do care about people and are very active in the community. My mom 
plays the piano for the village church that I went to growing up, even now. And they, you know, tithe 10% of what they make. (laughs) They um, do a lot of sort of, it's not like evangelical at all, but they certainly share what they believe with other people. So it was very much present in my life growing up and I really struggled with it because I could not wrap my head around any of it. I just, I tried really hard and I felt like there was something wrong with me because I just could not grasp the concept. And I also feel at the same time that a lot of what was taught is, you know, a lot of golden rules and things that you can apply in other situations just by changing a little bit of, um, uh, I, I don't know if it would be more changing stories, <laughs> like bi- even Bible stories, um, parables and, and such, they, they can be reinterpreted to just be good stories that have lessons for children, you know? So, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't feel like religion defines me at all. And yeah, I love my family and I support them in whatever they believe. Yeah. Do you, um, do you have a memory or a moment of when that started to change for me, for you? Because we all have times where as we're growing up, where you start to differentiate from your family, right. And you start to kind of become your own, you you can make your own decisions about what you believe in. Was it something that happened gradually for you? Was it something that like was an in, was there an instance or was it just a part of kind of your own evolution of becoming an adult? I definitely think it was gradual. There was no definitive moment for me where I woke up and thought, "Oh, my parents know a lot, and I I like a lot of what they have to say, but this doesn't." resonate with me at all. Um, I think moving out of my parents' house and going to school, you know, that's such a transitional time and you put a lot of thought into everything you're doing for the first time. And so that period is probably when I realized that what they believe and what they have taught me it isn't right or wrong. There's just another way of belief for me. And my um, beliefs are just, I don't really have a definition for what they are. They're just, they're just in some moments that feel like truth that I could not come to on my own. Like they're the universe's way of saying, this is a way of seeing the world um, and you're a part of it. So you still, you feel that connection to something bigger Mm -hmm. in moments between people and in moments in nature. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Those are the themes in my life. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm curious about, you've talked about, you know, we started with flower arranging. You mentioned the connection you feel with nature. And I know you grew up on a farm. And Mm -hmm. you go back there frequently to visit your family. Like you still have a deep connection there. And I'm wondering if that setting influenced 
kind of the way you see the world as well now. Mm-hmm. It's very much uh, a place that I come to when when times are good and when times are not good. You know, it's just my safe place and a place that I draw from when I am needing to just think and be still and sometimes to just disconnect as well. I mean, it's a place that I grew up in before there was the internet. (laughs) So it's really easy for me to unplug when I spend time there. And I mean, it's a, every window out of the farmhouse is its own gorgeous view of something. And then being outside is even more so. There's just a lot of places to go. And that it's like its own world. We have forests and we have the water, fields. We have a private lane that's tree-lined and the farm itself and rambling outbuildings. And there's just so much there that's come before me. And I'm really connected to that aspect. Just this feeling of the world is ancient and there's so much that it can show me. One of my favorite discoveries in recent years was that the field directly behind our farmhouse was filled with old pieces of pottery from when the original farmhouse burned to the ground and they rebuilt it. They just moved all of the rubble to the back of the house and built up and over it. And so one thing when I want to be really mindful, literally grounded, I'm sifting through the dirt, finding these little pieces of pottery and spoons and marbles and Victorian jewelry, just all kinds of little things. It's a bit quirky and not everyone would have access to that, but it's something very if you know me well, you would be like, yeah, that's a very you thing to do with your spare time and something you would do to just take a step inward. Yeah. And so I'm interested in the fact that you then grew up and moved to a a big city. And so what was that transition like for you? Because you're describing this farm as a very spiritual space. Like it's almost like a temple for you (laughs) in some ways. And then you come into an environment that's very different from that. And so what was that transition like for you? I think I've always tried to make a home wherever I am. And so you saying the farm is like my temple. Well, I brought things from my temple when I came to Ottawa that I absolutely needed by my side. Um, (laughs) I mean, I'm a journaler, and so I've kept notebooks since I was eight. So writing has always been a way for me to feel at home wherever I am because I can put a notebook in my pocket or my bag. Mm. And for me, like I do find a lot of comfort in ritual. So the idea of making tea for me is another thing of being able to just feel at home wherever I am. There's something about the tea whistle, the kettle whistle. Mm. It's almost like a kind of therapy when you hear the sound 
you know, tea is going to be available very soon. It's nice. (laughs) And I mean, in some ways I feel like the reason why the farm means so much to me now is because I'm not there all the time. It's special because of that. And so I get the best of both worlds. I get to be in the heart of downtown Ottawa most of the time. And I have a great community here and lots of things to do. And then I can also spend a weekend away from it all at the farm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Did you, was the farm the same for you growing up? Did you have that same feeling of connection to it? I didn't even like sleepovers as a kid. I just wanted to be home. So yes, I don't think that place has ever changed for me. (laughs) I would steal away. Like there's so many places to hide on a farm as a scrawny kid. So I just remember, again, carrying my notebook. And one of my favorite places to write was hidden on the edge of a silo. Like not climbing the silo to the very top, but more along its base. And there would be probably weeds I was allergic to, but there'd be tons of grass that would be at height with me and I would just embrace it all and no one would know where I'd be for hours. And sometimes I could actually hear them calling for me. And that was always fun to not be found. (laughs) Yeah, that's even like... I, I am was just like moved by what you were talking about earlier about creating this sense of home. And then like, I'm even imagining you creating your like a little home in the weeds, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for those, those moments. <laughs> yeah. So you've brought up journaling a lot and Mm -hmm. um, you are a writer and you're a poet. So I'm curious about where writing started for you because you've mentioned its origins a bit on the farm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think it probably started on a Christmas when I got a journal as a gift and I realized that I could write in my own voice, um, having really fallen deeply in love with Ellen Montgomery and those incredible stories of Anne of Green Gables and Emily of New Moon, things like that. Um, And just feeling like, I mean, as a kid, I, I just, that's all I wanted to do. I just wanted to, to write stories. And so I think that is where it started. And Then I came into poetry more when I was a student in Ottawa, and I just found that it was a great outlet when I wanted to procrastinate from writing essays. It's a more approachable form for being able to write something (laughs) and feel like you could, you know, write a poem in an evening. It just, there's a lot of pleasure in that, and I felt like there were lots of people um, in my immediate circle at school who were also poets. So there was also that fostering of community and we would just hang out and talk books, write books, you know, 
He was really welcoming. By, I mean, poetry and writing in general has always been for myself. Even if I didn't share any of it with anybody else, it would always be a form of expression that I need for myself. Yeah, that's interesting. I think a lot of people think about writing as for an audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's different to think about it as a practice that's just like, <laughs> can be just personal. It doesn't have to have a reader other than yourself. No. Or it doesn't have to have a reader at all, even. <laughs> no. Yeah. So I'm I'm curious as to hearing like a little bit more about your process as a writer. Like what, how does it connect you with, that sense of something greater in the world that you've talked about before, or does it? I really like to write in a way that enlarges details. And another thing I enjoy about poetry is you can focus on some small aspect and illuminate it. You don't have to show everything. You don't have to tell everything it's not about being complete. It's about the essence and also making connections that people can relate to and find themselves in. That's, that's how I like to write if I'm writing something that I want to share. And yeah, I, for a long time, resisted the idea of thinking I was maybe a confessional poet That is someone that writes a lot about my own experiences in my own voice, um, like the speaker as me, because I thought that it was a sign of weakness, that it was really easy to talk about yourself and have that point of view all of the time. But I'm now okay with it. I, I feel like there's nothing wrong or weak about that. I, I have, pushed myself in writing about other subjects. I'm really interested in social history and those narratives of people uh, in specific moments in time. So I have written on those subjects before, but I just find for me to really love writing, I mean, you have to write, like, like any art, I feel, you have to really love it in order to do it. And you also have to love it so that you can maybe encourage someone else to engage with it. Mm. There's so much art in the world. Sometimes it's hard to make people excited about what you're interested in because it can be so niche and specific, but if it's authentic and genuine, I really feel like people will be interested in anything if it is really visceral and they, they can find themselves in work like that. Mm. It strikes me what you're saying there at the very beginning, you were talking about that you find meaning in those moments of connection with people. And from what I'm hearing, it also sounds like that you do that through your writing as well, that you're, you're trying to find the connection point. Is that fair to say? Hmm. Yeah, I I think that's a very fair point to make, and a lot of the writing that I do, or have a lot of the writing that I've 
published um, has been reviewed by my peers as well. So there's also, there's so much that goes into writing that's very isolated. You, mm-hmm. you tend to do it on your own. But when you can find a couple of readers that you really trust, there's also the connections in the process and not even the, the subject matter, but the actual way that a poem gets out into the world that can include those connections with other people. Yeah, that's true. I would have never thought about. You're right. You totally think of writing as like (laughs) a solo project. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Or, I mean, I wrote a poem for my dad once and before he even read it, he said, I'm sure it's beautiful, but I probably won't be able to understand it. And it was so strange for me to hear that because I wrote it about him. It was about things that he does every day (laughs) without thinking. And that, it just kind of threw me when he he said that, that I would maybe have to read my poem and then, you know, do some kind of reading with him so he could understand it. It just, in my, in my poem of my, of my dad, he's this sort of mythic farmer (laughs) And I was like, how could, he, how could he not see himself in this? Um, so in the end, he, he read it and he said, okay, I get it. And that was probably the most chill reaction to a poem I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote you this poem. Oh, cool. I get it. Thank you. <laughs> uh, have you ever had... Um... Any other, like, surprise reactions to your work? I once... (laughs) I once wrote a haiku for a boy that worked at a coffee shop that I fancied. And then I promptly walked out of the coffee shop after giving him the poem. And... Then he wrote a response to my haiku in the student newspaper. It was a section where you could write in general comments about campus. And uh, then I wrote a reply that also made it in the school paper. And then we dated. (laughs) So that has probably been another different reaction to a poem. I had zero... I, I, I just did not think that it was going to go anywhere. I I didn't have any, this is a podcast about hope. I had zero hope that (laughs) he was going to look at me ever again if I ordered coffee there in the future. And then it turned out very nice. Yeah, a real human connection. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's that's amazing. That's a really cute story. Do you have those poems still? I do. I love scrapbooks and like little collections of ephemera so I'm sure I do but I think they're in storage at the farm (laughs) so I haven't looked at them in a while yeah right (laughs) Uh, um so I think speaking of relationships I'm curious to hear your perspective on how you approach relationships because one of the things that I have noticed in you is that you're very conscious I think in how you interact with people. And I don't mean that in a way that's like self-conscious. 
I mean mm-hmm. it in a way that's like mindful. I think you think a lot about the other person you're interacting with. And I also think that you have a really strong sense of yourself and your knowing of what feels right or not right in a relationship. And I'm curious about where that comes from in you. I feel like my relationships and my relationship with relationships, I mean, knowing yourself is the first step to being able to treat another person with love and kindness. So having that really firm understanding of who I am, what makes me happy, what gives me purpose, it certainly ties into my relationships, um, romantic or friendships or family, all kinds. And I am very intentional. I think a lot about what I'm thinking and doing. That's equally as important to me as action. I mean, I see thinking as an action. (laughs) So I think giving that weight to my thoughts is another way I'm really mindful. And recently I have been way more embracing of change and just keeping an open mind. I've had some unexpected changes in my life this past year and it could have been a time where I completely fell apart (laughs) in a lot of my thinking and instead it was because my thinking is what it is that I was able to rely on that and fall back on that. I have moved. I've had three apartments in the past 12 months and also just letting go of a lot of my belongings it has been really cathartic for me. Um, just realizing how little stuff I need to be a, a whole person and how that also translates in terms of what are the things I absolutely need to, to be the best version of myself. I think I deviated away from your question a little bit, but (laughs) that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's all good. I think for a lot of people, it is a lifelong journey to get to know yourself and trust yourself. And so I'm curious as to how you have learned to do that being you know, 30 something mm-hmm. <laughs> and young, like what was, what was your journey to, to learning to, to trust yourself? I think that it's so easy to try and follow what other people in your life are doing because it seems like it's making them happy or it's just the arc of life. And I, I, took some time with myself and I love being on my own. If I don't have enough time to myself, I just don't have as productive of a week. Like, and that's one thing that I did learn about myself as 
oh, I'm maybe not as social a person as I thought I should be, and that's okay. Um, yeah, I, I think that just thinking about what I need as opposed to this is what people have told me I need is a really good first step. And the more that you sort of narrow down what you enjoy and your preferred ways of engaging with other people and how you want to create work-life balance and how you want to spend your time is really the root of this. Because when people say to me, I don't have any spare time, I don't believe them. Even, even some of the busiest people in my life who are really at a good place. They have free time. <laughs> um, I think we always make time for the things that are crucial for us. And that has been, I mean, I don't think there's any one thing or secret to how you can really develop that intuition. But for me, just being really thoughtful in the choices that I make. And when I make choices that feel good, I keep making choices based on the choices I've made before that I know have resulted in a positive way. And, and so you do see those patterns where we're designed to make those connections. Our brains are so strong. <laughs> and, and then it just doesn't feel like any work. It's just the way you operate. It's just autopilot. Yeah. This might be like a weird question and maybe you don't have an answer for it, but I was just thinking as you were speaking there, when you're trying to make a decision and you're like, this is the right thing to do, or this is the wrong thing to do, or I need to let go of this or not focus on this. We all have a way that that kind of shows up for us. And like, for me, what I say is I feel like I can like hear it. Do you mm. know what I mean? I feel like I get... It's like that tingly sense that something is like whispering to me. I've had another person in my life who says that they feel like they can smell it before it gets wow. there. <laughs> you know, something changes on the air and they feel like, so I'm curious if there's a sense, like what is the sense that you have in those moments that guide you into knowing what the right choice for yourself is? When it comes to really difficult decisions that sometimes take time to make, I definitely take all of that time that I have <laughs> and for the decisions that you have to make quickly. I mean, first of all, I think we make a lot of decisions on a daily basis that aren't really of consequence. And sometimes it can feel overwhelming because of that. Anytime you need to order a coffee, for example, like it's a coffee for me. I'm okay. It, I don't want to make it more complicated than it needs to be. Um, but yeah, just, pairing back and also remembering that if it isn't the right decision, I'll probably get an opportunity to maybe not necessarily correct it, but it's not the end. There's always something that comes after this. And also delaying a decision is a decision. <laughs> so you sometimes you just have to choose if you don't know, like, I can't remember what expert said this, but a lot of the time 
the two options that you have when you're trying to make a decision in the moment, they seem so close together. It seems like the hardest decision to make because they're so similar. But once you've made the decision and have ownership of that decision, you only then realize how different those two options were. So it's something that has, I think, got a lot of attention lately, the the act of decision-making. So on that kind of like same subject, like how do you deal with doubt? If doubt comes up in your life about the decisions you've made or the path you're on, where do you find the resiliency to keep moving forward or what do you do to support yourself through that? I call my mom. I, I really do. I think that we sometimes want to keep a lot to ourselves because we don't want to burden those closest to us. But, and it's not always my mom. I have some really amazing friends and I love the phone. I don't FaceTime. I don't use Skype. I don't really like texting, but I love the phone. If I can't physically be in front of someone, the phone is my choice of communication I really do turn to that first just because I know that when you're in that place of doubt, there's a lot of other things going on that have led you there. You might be exhausted. You might be having some burnout at work or at home. There's so many other things that come into play and you might not feel the same way when you wake up the next morning. So yeah, I really do you find support in my friends and family? Yeah. Do you ever use writing to help you in those situations? I write the most when things are tumultuous, actually. So, yes, <laughs> I find it. I need to figure out a way of writing more when I'm in a good place, when I'm really, really happy, because that's when I don't write as often. But, yeah, I... I definitely use writing as a way of working through my thoughts. And one other thing I really do when I'm going through a difficult time and I use writing as a tool is I just write notes to myself. Like they're not even full, like they can be bullet points. They can be single words and I will come back to those later and I will mine my own journals for poetry. (laughs) So I definitely think that writing for me is, I I use it in so many different ways and that is one of them for sure. Yeah, totally. So I have one more kind of like question that came to me as you were talking. You've talked about the ideas of lineage and ancestry a lot. Um, so I'm, I'm curious about what that means to you. What does lineage and ancestry mean to you? What does it connect you with? Why is it important to you? I think that I'm interested in the past because I see it as a, a continuation. Uh, like I see people that I know now clearly in in looking at what's come before like I do see a lot of repetition like obviously there's some changes that we've had um, in the last couple of generations 
but I just find it really important to be cognizant of the fact that we are participating in the world right now. We won't always be in the same way, but we are going to make some contribution. And I don't feel like our culture accumulates things in the same way or keeps records. It might be interesting to see how libraries manage email correspondence instead of letter correspondence as an example. Right. But yeah, I, I just think that as a as a person that I, I just really enjoy history as a pastime. Um, so what stands out to me when I try to include it in my writing is just how how rich and vast it is. And it's not because I want to live in the past, but I just see it as well, we have we can learn so much from other people's stories and how they live their lives. So why wouldn't you want to compare notes at times? <laughs> I love the way you put that. That's so true. <laughs> I also think that's important because, you know, it's a it's a saying for a reason that there's nothing new under the sun, right? Mm-hmm. So why wouldn't we think that there's wisdom? Mm-hmm. <laughs> why wouldn't we think that the people back then were asking the same questions and trying to figure the same stuff out? Yeah, they... I'm sure, too, that they might have figured some things out. So the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines faith in three ways. One is an allegiance or duty that you have to something. Two, as a belief or trust in something that's greater than yourself. Or three, as something that you believe in or know beyond a shadow of a doubt. So I want to put those three parts of the definition to you as questions. So for you, Rachel, what do you feel a duty or allegiance to in your life? I really do think it would be home for me because the idea of that is so much more than a structure. It's making a home for yourself, but then also inviting others into that space if they need it or if they want to spend time with you. And I feel like I have many homes, some that I've created for myself and others that have been given to me or or shared with me. And it's such a big part of who I am, just cultivating home. And I'm the kind of person that I sometimes go home and I say hello to my house when I walk through the door. (laughs) I live alone, by the way, so... If I had a cat or another person um, to say hello to, it might be that person or cat. For now, it is just that feeling of arrival and being able to have an environment that you've had a say in. There's not a lot of places where you can do that in the world. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. 
So what do you put your faith or trust in that is bigger than yourself? I do think it would be nature. It's just such a gift to us. And it has seasons the same way we do. It's just so much a reflection of myself sometimes. Like if I'm needing to make parallels, um, it's, it's easy to do that. And yeah, that's my answer. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's great. And what do you believe or know beyond a shadow of a doubt? And I think that everyone does have something at the core of them that they know or believe. You are always going to be enough, even if you still have so much growth to do, so many plans. I think we all have everything that we need to live our lives and it will present itself at different times, but it's all there. Yeah. Yeah. That's really important. Thank you. Thank you. So what is your spiritual practice that you want to share? Practice that you do on a regular basis, whether that's daily or weekly or monthly or any sort of frequency that connects you to your faith or your hope or yourself? Journaling is that for me. And I think one way that I maybe do it differently than other people, and there's a lot of different ways to journal, admittedly, but I really like to journal on days when nothing of real consequence has happened, where it's just a quiet day. Because that is my life. Like that is the majority of how my days are. And I find a lot of value in journaling in the moment and what it does for me as I'm writing. But I also use it as a reference. And I revisit my journals in order to see my growth in order to come back to events that were really hard for me and to just celebrate in the fact that they are no longer that way. And I also just have a lot of pleasure in rereading my entries. And I've been doing this for years. So it's even a tradition around the holidays where I will get out my journals from when I was eight, nine, 10 years old and I will sit on the floor by the Christmas tree with my family around and just share entries. And we will just laugh our heads off because some of the things I wrote are just pure comedy. So it's a way of memory keeping for me, but in a very different kind of way where I want to take note of things that if I hadn't written them down, I probably wouldn't remember them. And maybe that's indulgent because do you really want to remember everything? But of course I'm selective in that I want to remember the day I planted paper whites, which I wrote down. (laughs) It was January 5th of this year. And I was really happy I wrote it down because by the time they bloomed, I couldn't remember when I'd planted them. And I was just thinking of how long it took and how long it might take for next year. And I I had that record. So just really seemingly trivial things that we create 
our own meaning. We have our own language in, in certain aspects. And for me, I just, I really do like the commonplace because I, I like drawing attention to those little details. It, it really is something that I'm interested in. And they do show up in a lot of my poems too because those little details add such color to our lives. And if you're always thinking big picture, big moments, milestones, you might miss out on those little cues that led to some other bigger parts of your life. Yeah, that's really great. (laughs) (laughs) And you can find Rachel Simpson's spiritual practice, Everyday Journaling, in the Spiritual Practice Library at keepingfaithpod.com where you can listen to her guide you through it and try it out for yourself. Keeping Faith is produced by Ron Kelly and Marin Smith. Our music is by Ron Kelly and our design is by Barbara Kowalski. If this episode spoke to you, you can subscribe or leave us a review. But more importantly, pass it along to someone you care about. It's one way we can encourage each other to keep faith. Next week, I'll be talking to Dave Fodiatis about how his upbringing in a radical faith tradition launched him on a personal journey to uncover the truth about life, faith, and how the universe worked, one that he's just coming to terms with now. So until then, holding you in hope and faith, I'm Marin Smith. See you next week.